Hello, and welcome to another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. My name is Andrei Matišar, and I work as the Deputy Head of Foreign Desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which, by the way, means truth, and it's not Russian Pravda. The Good Friday Agreement that ended the conflict in Northern Ireland turned 25 on April 10th. What were the main factors that contributed to its success? I talked to Sean McDade, a senior lecturer in politics from the Department of Behavioral and Social Science at Huddersfield University. We discussed the history of the Troubles, terrorists from the Irish Republican Army, and their international connections, including the Soviet one, but also what's next for Northern Ireland amid Brexit. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. John, if I say the troubles, what is your first association? How would you explain troubles to somebody who has, let's say, relatively limited understanding, to somebody who knows there is UK, there is Northern Ireland, there is Ireland, there was something like the Irish Republican Army. So if we can try to do this. I would say that best way to describe what I associate with the Troubles is the approximately 30-year period of violence in Northern Ireland, the communal conflict between sort of 1968 through to 1998 before the signature of the Belfast Good Friday Agreement. And the roots of that conflict go very far back in history. But to sum up and to kind of make it as contemporary as possible, I would say that the roots of the modern troubles and inverted commas lie in the reaction of the nationalist community in Northern Ireland to the way in which Northern Ireland had been governed since 1920, when Ireland was divided between Northern Ireland and what became the Republic of Ireland. For that period of, say, 40-odd years, Northern Ireland had been governed by a single party, the Ulster Unionist Party, which reflected the fact that the majority in Northern Ireland were unionists. They didn't want to break with the United Kingdom. They didn't want to see Ireland independent, as it were. And the Ulster Unionist government essentially was a very majoritarian setup. They governed in the interests of unionist majority. And the nationalist community had no real chance of influence in the government or forming part of the government. The ways in which The nationalist community reacted to that then varied. Some still subscribed to the physical force tradition, the argument that Ireland should be free and independent and that it was legitimate to use armed force to do so, whereas others believed that peaceful means were the way to go and that there was still an issue with uh, trying to ensure that any of your political objectives were met without the use of violence. In the late 1960s, the nationalist community started to take to the streets to protest this, and there was a sort of what was called a civil rights organization. They took to the streets. The authorities responded in a fairly heavy-handed way to that, and unionists were kind of concerned about the direction of travel. Was it really about civil rights, or were, were these people really about trying to break the connection of Northern Ireland with the UK? And to cut a long story short, the reaction of the state led many to question whether or not the state was reformable. And at around about this time, the Republican movement 
comes back on the scene. They had been kind of in the background since the 1920s, but they hadn't really had any major success. And the Republican movement then comes in. And it's when the Republican movement, the IRA, come in that we really start to see the birth of the Troubles. A few years prior to that, the Loyalist side had begun to kind of come back out of the shadows, as it were, and, and sort of form the paramilitary groups that we associate with them. And after the IRA emerges, we see a sort of a spiral into conflict. The Loyalist groups emerge in 1972 as well. And from there, the Northern Ireland authorities aren't able to contain the situation. Direct rule is introduced from Westminster. The British Army are on the streets since 1969. And from then, it sort of takes off into a kind of a very complex, multifaceted conflict. On the one hand, between Republicans and Loyalists within Northern Ireland, those who believe in Irish unity and those who wish to preserve the link with the UK. The British Army is involved sort of in the middle of this, trying to regulate that and, and to control the security situation. The police are involved. And of course, the British and Irish governments are left trying to work out a solution to this in the context of an increasingly difficult and challenging situation. So that is probably not a very simplistic explanation. I think it's a great explanation. Simple, but very thorough. So there's a lot going on, essentially. There's a lot of parties to it. And uh, I would say it's very multifaceted. But the key players, to my mind, when I, when you talk about the Troubles, the Republicans, the Loyalists, who are the people who are committing the acts of violence, the political players who represent the communities that they come from, and the British and Irish governments, to my mind, are the, are the key players and then trying to, to find a solution to that. You mentioned the Irish Republican Army. I thought it's probably a simplistic view for many people, the IRA is the synonym of the Northern Ireland conflict. And of course, there were two organizations during the Troubles, the official IRA and the provisional IRA. But what can we say about the role of the IRA and how much it can be described as the terrorist organization? Also, in a sense, how do we these days assess terrorist groups? Undoubtedly, given the nature of the organization and the nature of the attacks that it committed, we could easily classify it as a terrorist organization. It committed terrorist attacks, it committed bombings, shootings, and that sort of thing. It pioneered tactics like car bombings and so on. So it was a very kind of cutting edge, in a sense, a paramilitary group in one way. Of course, those who supported the IRA would claim that they, they weren't terrorists at all, that they were in, engaged in a war of liberation. On the other hand, the IRA was responsible for approximately two-thirds of the deaths that took place during the course of that 30-year period. So I think the nomenclature, if you like, that we use is disputed by some, but I think there'd be a broad consensus that the things that were committed, the acts that were committed by the provisional IRA could be classed as terrorist acts. Its role in the conflict, I think, was fairly straightforward in the sense that the provisional IRA believed that the Irish people had the right to be free of British influence, to be free of British rule, and that it was legitimate to use physical force to achieve that aim. The provisional IRA of, uh, campaign lasts, you know, 30 odd years. And so it has a very significant role in keeping the conflict going as long as it did. But then, of course, in later years, it has a very significant role in bringing that conflict to an end through the peace process and the period leading up to the, the Belfast or Good Friday Agreement. So it's, uh, it's essentially both. You know, it's it's one of the key reasons why the conflict lasts as long as it did. But then, of course, the leadership 
in later years become key players in what was to become the peace process. So again, a fairly complicated organization, straightforward at the start, but becomes increasingly, you know, one which is engaged in both, what would you say, military campaign, increasingly reorientates its direction to more of a political campaign. There is an interesting angle on how to look at the RA. I mean, from the international point of view and ideological point of view. The RRA cooperated with the Soviet bloc in the 70s at the time the KGB director Yuri Andropov ordered the weapon deliveries for them. But also the ties with the Palestinians and Libyans were interesting. Muammar Gaddafi's regime provided some things for the RRA. Knowing this, how can we classify the RRA as an organization from the ideological point of view? It's important to draw the distinction between the two different wings of the IRA. The IRA splits in late 1969, early 1970, and the left-leaning kind of part of the organization becomes the official IRA, the more nationalist sort of separatist branch of the organization, which is the majority, becomes the provisional IRA. And that the links to the Soviet bloc are much more significant with the official IRA, not surprisingly, because their ideology is is essentially Marxist-Leninist. The way they make their decisions is based on sort of democratic centralism and that sort of thing. So they would tick the box as far as the Soviet is concerned. And some reports and studies have looked the links between Moscow and the official IRA. And it's been argued that the KGB supplied the official IRA with particular weaponry and so on. In 1972, there was... Um, a book based on the, uh, and I'm going to murder the pronunciation here, I think it's the Mitrochin Archive. Yeah. The trail of documents from there suggested that there was supplies of, of weaponry from Moscow to the official IRA paramilitary group. Again, ideologically there, there would have been a significant crossover. And I think in many cases, that ideological position would have been pretty genuine. There would have been genuinely left-leaning in that sense. When it comes to the provisional IRA, the ideology is much more fluid, if you like. It's definitely nationalist. It's not kind of the nationalism that we would kind of think about when we think of a sort of ultra-nationalism. It's not sort of far-right nationalism or exclusionary in that sense, in the sense that it's not, what, how would you say, it's not supremacist to some degree. It's not saying the Irish people are supreme and better than anybody else. So there's none of that thinking in it, but it's um, very much kind of framing the Irish people as very distinct and separate from the British people. And we can see how problematic that is from the point of view of Northern Ireland, where many people have a British identity. And uh, many people from the unionist community see themselves as British and they would you know, have seen the IRA as a very real threat. And, and indeed, it was a very real threat to their community. And in terms of their international links, well, they kind of very much framed themselves more in the kind of the international freedom fighter genre, if you like. We've already discussed the fact that many of the acts they committed fall into the terrorism category, but as they saw it, they were kind of freedom fighters in the same vein as Palestinian Liberation Organization, the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine. And again, various reports suggested that there was mutual visits and so on, that the IRA had visited these organizations, that there was, you know, crossover there. And certainly from the point of view of propaganda, they would have shared the Palestinian cause, would have championed that. 
The Basque separatist ETA would be one of their more enduring relationships with the provisional IRA, again, seeing themselves very much in a, as cut from the same cloth as fighting, a, well, in the Basque case, two superior uh, colonial powers, in inverted commas, in Spain and France, and in the IRA's case, you know, waging a war of liberation against Britain as they saw it. There was huge links there in terms of how they, they framed the struggle. South Africa is probably the other one. There was a lot of kind of, what would you say, support for the cause of the ANC. And indeed, some representatives from the ANC would have visited Ireland during the period of conflict and so on to discuss various matters with political Republicans, not necessarily any of the armed groups. So they again, they would have framed their study, their sort of struggle as they saw it in, in these wider separatist terms, anti-colonial wars of liberation, and, and they, they placed themselves in that category. In terms of where their support comes from internationally, well, the big one is obviously the United States because of the Irish diaspora. The organizations there in the United States, such as Irish Northern Aid, which would have sought to, if you like, promote the cause of Irish freedom as they saw it. And their big international ally, at least for a while, was Gaddafi in Libya. There were various attempts, as you've said, the Semtex, which I believe was of Czechoslovakian manufacture back in the day, came via Libyan channels. And there were a number of large arms shipments which were thwarted from landing in the arms of the IRA, which were alleged to have come from the Libyan connection as well, 1973, 1987, and so on. And had those weapons gone into their hands, then obviously, who knows how much longer, how much more damage could have been sustained. So in terms of their overall worldview, linking themselves to things like the Basque struggle, the South African struggle, the Palestinian freedom movement, but the logistical and the kind of financial support comes primarily from the United States. And Gaddafi's Libya is also an important one. Sean, as you said, the IRA was responsible for two-thirds of deaths during the Troubles and was able to prepare quite a few big attacks, like the unsuccessful attempt to kill Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher in the hotel in Brighton in 1984. On the other hand, how do you assess the reaction of Westminster to the Troubles? Everybody heard about Bloody Sunday, at least via YouTube songs, inspired by the massacre in 1972, when British soldiers shot 26 unarmed civilians during a protest march. I think the reaction of Westminster was a combination of carrot and stick, probably much more of the stick in, in the early days. They were very keen to kind of get the security situation under control because the army took the lead in that respect. The ways in which the kind of attempts to control that security situation might have been not always the most suitable for the, the kind of conflict that it was and the kinds of urban areas that the conflict was taking place. So the military approach, to my mind at least, was, whilst understandable, perhaps contributed to incidences and a context which made resolving the conflict more difficult and which kind of, if you like, reduced the confidence of the nationalists or Republican communities who lived in areas where paramilitary groups were operating but didn't necessarily participate in those groups, it kind of reduced their confidence in the ability of the state to kind of offer anything to them. So I think there's that element. There was obviously a very strong legislative response to the, the conflicts, things like the Prevention of Terrorism Acts, which had really quite significant powers. They were meant to be temporary, but of course, because of the duration of the conflict, they stayed on the, the statute books for long periods of time. Things like exclusion orders, where people could be prevented from traveling from Northern Ireland to 
Great Britain created obvious uh, issues. It probably created a sense of suspicion of Irish people who lived in Great Britain as well. The conflict had impacts in that way. The response of the Westminster government with things like exclusion orders probably added to some degree to that. Overly harsh security measures in general, I would say probably, you know, contributed to a souring of relations with the national community and a reduction in trust. But at the same time, the British government also were engaged in many initiatives to try and bring some sort of political stability to the region. There were secret talks with with, uh, paramilitary groups such as the IRA in the 1970s. So it wasn't just in the 1990s when the government was talking to these groups. So there were lines of communication open. There were attempts to bring nationalists into government in Northern Ireland, which is in 1973 and 1974, when the the government attempted to bring in a power-sharing executive. That actually collapsed due to loyalist opposition, although the the provisional IRA opposed it as well, because they regarded it as as, participation in a British institution, not advancing the goal of Irish freedom. So I think on the positive side, they kept the lines of communication open. They engaged with outside players, such as the Dublin government, to try and bring about some sort of political stability. On the negative side, the heavy-handed security reactions and the heavy-handed security policy undoubtedly contributed to a lack of confidence in the, the, the security forces, tarnished relations, and probably led some people who may not otherwise have been inclined to get involved in conflict to participate through the kind of um, just just being swept up and, and that sort of thing. So let's jump into the 90s. What were the main factors? that led to the Good Friday Agreement? Well, there's a bit of a debate here because some people argue that essentially there was a stalemate and that the IRA realised they couldn't win the conflict. The British side realised they couldn't beat the IRA. The IRA realised they couldn't beat the British. And the loyalists were kind of also of the mind that the, the conflict couldn't go on indefinitely. Others say that actually what happens is there's a number of factors which are ongoing. There's a huge number of years of intergovernmental discussion. The British and Irish governments and the United States are deeply committed to try and find a political solution. There are parties within Northern Ireland, such as the Social Democratic and Labour Party. They were the the largest nationalist party before the peace process, exclusively non-violent and democratic. They wished to see a united Ireland and they held the main position within the nationalist community. And the then leader of that party, John Hume, became engages in dialogue with Jerry Adams of Sinn Féin. And so these Hume-Adams negotiations are ongoing to try and, and bring a political process forward. So there's a confluence of factors there. There are those within the Republican movement who start to kind of reorient their thinking to a degree. Instead of thinking about things in terms of total victory, of sort of uh, you know, the complete liberation of Ireland from British rule, as they would see it. They start to frame the, the conflict and the reasons for the conflict in different ways and sort of advance in more of this idea of, of equality um, within Northern Ireland and, and sort of thinking about an equality agenda. On the other hand, perhaps on, on the loyalist side as well, at community level, there are those who start to question the utility of the violence and where it's going. And so I think there's this confluence of factors. It's a wider political context. It's what's happening at community level. And it's the change in people's thinking about trying to find a way out after, you know, almost 30 years of conflict. Where no, but, you know, on one hand, there is this stalemate thesis, but 
I think it's a bit more complicated than that. There's a lot of things going on, a lot of factors. But the key thing is that the British and Irish governments keep chipping away at this. Despite the ups and downs in their relationship, they're always there or thereabouts trying to bring about a, a, a situation where dialogue can take place. And the parties within Northern Ireland, particularly the SDLP, are at the forefront of trying to bring the, the parties within Northern Ireland around the table as well. So there's a lot going on there, I think. Just that persistence and that long-term engagement starts to bear fruit in the 1990s. The EU politicians like to emphasize that the success of the Good Friday Agreement was based also on the fact that Ireland and the UK have been EU member states. How do you see this? And if it was, what about Brexit? To start with the first part of the question, the again, as I said in the last response, the, the wider political context is important in all of this. And whilst the peace process wasn't necessarily driven you know, by the European Union, and, and, and my view would have happened with or without the European Union, what the European Union does is it makes certain things easier. So, for example, the fact that there is the institution of the single market and the customs union, things like that, reduce the need for frontiers anyway. And so that makes the uh, demilitarization and sort of the removal of the, the border checks between the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland easier because the once the security situation calms down, the military posts can come down. But equally, then there's no need for customs posts or anything like that, any kind of infrastructure which denotes where one state ends and the other begins. I think also the European Union very much changed the way people thought about what you know, what the nation was and things like sovereignty. It kind of made British-Irish collaboration much easier. Those historic, The historical baggage, if you like, between Ireland and Britain became a bit lighter because we were all part of the same club now and the goals of that club were to increase and to deepen cooperation and collaboration across borders. And so we, we had a common endeavour in that sense. That context was important. After the peace process in the 1990s onwards, the EU also plays a very significant role in kind of the economic side of things and, and the reconstruction through the funding, the peace program. So there's a huge amount of investment in Northern Ireland, which comes from administered sources. So it's there. It's significant. It's kind of in the background. It facilitates, I would say, and, and makes certain things easier. So it is important. It's not the key player that kind of starts things and, and gets things over the line, but that context and that institution and, and the mechanisms that the EU brings in make some of the collaborations easier. Brexit is, of course, the big one, and the question about how significant that is, to an extent, that's partly solved in a sense that before the end of the transition period, uh, when the UK left the EU, the big concern was, is there going to be the return of a hard border uh, on the island of Ireland? Well, the answer to that is no, because we had a deal between the EU and the UK, which included, of course, the, the Northern Ireland Protocol, um, which has been recently revised into the Windsor framework. But that agreement has you know, stopped the manifestation of a hard border. But... What, of course, it does is create a lot of political discontent because, on the one hand, there are many people who oppose Brexit across the communities, not just nationalists, but not many unionists who oppose Brexit as well. It's probably fair to say that more nationalists voted to remain than unionists, given that the DUP was the kind of the big anti-Brexit party in the referendum. But the unionists 
are not happy with the current arrangements which prevent a hard border on the island of Ireland because they align Northern Ireland with EU rules. And the concern is that, therefore, this somehow dilutes Northern Ireland's place as part of the United Kingdom. And they were particularly unhappy about the Northern Ireland Protocol because of checks between Great Britain and Ireland on goods which were moving between what are effectively two parts of the same country but were subject to checks as if they were coming from a foreign or third country, if you like. It creates a lot of instability. There's a lot of political discontent. And to a large degree, that is one of the reasons why power sharing hasn't yet been restored. And so whilst the worst of the violence has still been contained, if you like, by the, the frameworks that we have, that political stability and that sort of ability to get institutions up and running that are functional for the people that live in Northern Ireland remain a challenge. And I think Brexit has been one of the things that has made that more challenging. Coming back to what you just said about the stability, we have seen smaller or larger flashes of violence in Northern Ireland, also a little bit of violence just ahead of uh, the visit of US President Joe Biden. How would you assess maybe the security situation in Northern Ireland? How probable or improbable might be that something bigger could happen? And maybe also, is there any legacy of Irish Republican Army? What happened to all those people who were at one moment waging violence? And of course, there were a lot of guns, a lot of weapons among people. And I don't think that all of them are just drinking tea. No, I think probably not all of them are just drinking tea. Something stronger, maybe. There was, of course, a decommissioning process as part of the peace agreement and as part of the wider settlement there in the IRA. Decommission, sources say, the, the probably the vast majority of its weapons in the mid-2000s. But of course, as throughout Republican history, there have always been splinter groups who have broken off and who have disagreed about the direction of travel of the IRA. And of course, that was no different during the peace process. So there were elements who had been associated with the provisional IRA who disagreed with the Good Friday Agreement and who maintained the belief that physical force, as they call it, armed struggle, was legitimate and was the only vehicle, as they saw it, to a united Ireland. And so this is where we hear, we kind of hear the phrase dissident republicanism. And dissident republican groups, what, what is generally meant by that is the, those groups which oppose the peace process and the Good Friday Agreement, and those groups which maintain wings and maintain both the capacity and the willingness to carry out violent acts. Recently, we had the terrorism level in Northern Ireland was raised to severe by the British government. So there's obviously a concern there that there is increased potential for violence. Now, whether or not that will lead to something higher level than what we've seen recently remains to be seen. But of course, there have been attacks on the police recently attributed to dissident Republican groups. So you know, who knows, perhaps under different circumstances, maybe there might have been a bigger tragedy, let's put it this way. At the same time as that there remain dissident Republican groups, there are also loyalist groups um, who oppose, for example, the settlement with the European Union, have recently, according to news reports, been engaged in feuds with one another. Police allege that a number of those involved might be engaged in criminality and that the disputes relate to that. So whether or not they're, again, 
on that side of the house, things will escalate. Uh, it remains to be seen and how much of that will be loyalists maybe having internal disputes or whether that will spread more widely. So personally, I would be cautious. I think there's much to be cautious about. But I think in terms of the wider social base, I don't see a huge level of support in the communities for a return to that sort of thing. I don't see a huge level of support for a return to widespread violence. I think the 25 years of relative stability, when it, at least in, in regards to the violence, has maybe changed people's mindsets in that regard. So I don't imagine that any group who pushed an agenda of escalating attacks would receive any kind of community support from whatever community, be that the nationalists or, or the loyalists. There'll always be small elements or fringe elements within any community who may or may not support that sort of thing, but the vast majority wouldn't have any truck with it. And the main political parties are all on board with non-violent methods. So I think the prospects for such a group would be fairly slim. But that's not to say they couldn't do any harm. That's not to say they still couldn't do a fair bit of damage. They could, you know, they still have the capacity to hurt and to kill. Sean, and one last thing, the Good Friday Agreement could lead to the United Ireland, to the unification of the island. From your perspective, let's say in medium, longish term, how probable is it? This is the $64,000 question, as they say. I think in the medium term, I would rank the prospects as fairly low. I don't see a scenario whereby there will be a referendum held at any point on the issue of Irish unification in sort of the next, to my mind, 10 years anyway, uh, at a minimum. British Secretary of State for Northern Ireland has the power to make provisions for such a referendum if they believe that uh, consensus exists for that to take place. I don't see that happening anytime soon. There's a lot of kind of churn in some of the opinion polls. On the one hand, you might see a poll which shows X amount of people in favour of United Ireland, and then another poll later you see, oh, it's a lot more complicated than that. Uh, so medium term, I don't see it happen. If there is to be a referendum on the border, I, c- I think that's a much more long term prospect. And it will depend on demographics within Northern Ireland. It'll also depend on the political context in Britain, because it seems to me inconceivable that a conservative government, particularly this conservative government, would countenance a referendum on the border in Northern Ireland at the very same time as they're trying to stop another referendum in Scotland and that sort of thing. So there's, again, the wider context I think is important here. Equally, although opinion polls show that people in the Republic of Ireland would generally be favourable to Irish unity, I think the Dublin government would absolutely lose their minds if they had to start (laughs) planning for Irish unity and particularly paying for Irish unity. So I think there's a lot of complications there. I don't see any movement in the medium term. Longer term, it may be somewhat inevitable that the question has to be asked. What the answer will be, I think, is still very much up for discussion. This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned.